one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. There's something uniquely affecting about the death of a famous athlete. They're immortalised by their achievements, frozen in time at their prime. Football has paid its respects to Norman Hunter and Peter Bonetti. Legends at smaller clubs like Alf Wood have also passed away. It got me thinking about heroes in a football context. What do they say about us and the game that produced them? You'll go first, Aid. Uh, who was your first hero? It's a good question, actually, because I was spotted by Arsenal fairly young. From the age of 10, 11 onwards, I was quite clinical about my sort of perception of football in terms of wanting to make it and whatnot. And I don't think I enjoyed the kind of fandom that a lot of people would have. So I would have to rewind to when I was really, really young. And I think that your heroes, the people that you fall in love with initially, are the ones you see in the flesh first. And I went to Ipswich Town, I went to Portman Road when it was the glory years under Bobby Robson, later to become Sir Bobby, of course. And Ipswich had never had a team like it they won well they were runners up twice in a row in the old first division they won the uefa cup my heroes were the entire team i can still rattle off that team as you know just like that i mean younger listeners wouldn't remember but you got cooper burley butcher osman mills tyson murin gates you've got you've got so many brazil and the midfielder that was a mariner of course up front the one player I've missed out was my favourite player. So my hero, really, when I was six, seven, eight, John Walk. John Walk was a grizzly Scot, <laughs> but he had an unbelievable few years at, at Ipswich. I was looking at 80-81, which was the season, really, when I first got into football. 36 goals in 64 matches for John Walk that season. He was a midfielder. Quite remarkable, really, campaign. So he was my favourite in a team of heroes for everyone that lived in Suffolk at the time, Ipswich Town with the team. Yeah, so John Walk is, is the one that I look to first. Yeah, thanks for making me feel old, Aid. Uh, I actually covered that team in the in the UEFA Cup. I can remember it was, it was uh, in that in that cut run in the UEFA Cup. We ended up in Poland in a place called Łódź, 
and it was minus 17. Oh. And Kevin Beatty, who was one of the great players mm. who, who didn't quite fulfil himself, played in that game in a short-sleeved shirt. I could not believe it <laughs> because we were we were in the stands dressed like the Red Army. You know those hats that you have where yeah. it, they cover up your ears? Well, we were there and huddled, and he was just strutting about, and I just thought, wow, <laughs> this guy is a superhuman. I suppose, you know, from my point of view, as a kid, as a ball boy at Watford, there were two players that probably people have never heard of. One was called Barry Endine, who was a sort of a bullocking striker, got the goal against Liverpool in the FA Cup quarterfinal. And the other one's a, a Scottish winger called Stuart Scullion who was a third division player simply because he never got his head up. He was brilliantly, brilliantly talented. You know, he could change pace. The ball was attached to his feet. He absolutely made life hell for fullbacks. But his crosses, it was just like a lottery. You know, they ended up anywhere. And occasionally they found their target. But if he could have had the capacity to just think a bit more, do it less instinctively. He would have been an absolute star, mm. but there we are. Mm. What about you, Seb? I cheated, guys. I've, I've actually got two because I what, what Adrian said about players you see for the first time in the flesh really resonates with me. So I think the player I, I pretended to be in the playground was probably Paul Gascoigne. Just because, firstly, I, I was a little bit of a fat child. Um, <laughs> and and Gascoigne, Gascoigne didn't look like an athlete. Even then, like now, now the sort of the definition of a football player has changed physically. But then a Gascoigne just... Gascoigne made the game look fun. Like, obviously, you know, his, his talent spoke for itself and we know what he was as a footballer, but I think he made the game look enjoyable and there was something about the way he played that appealed to me when I was probably about seven or eight years old. I grew up in Oxford and while Gascoigne was kind of a TV figure for me, I spent sort of my early years watching Oxford United at the Manor Ground. I was a bit of a death trap of a football stadium that actually it was just, you know, I mean, looking back at pictures now, it, it, I, I can't believe they let people in there. It was just... Yeah, in oh, played there. Loved it. Yeah, great. With the, with a big slope uh, towards the uh, towards London Road end. Yeah, had to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I suppose a lot of people won't have heard of him. But Joey Beecham back then was just a mesmerising footballer. I mean, he's known now today because of that aborted transfer to West Ham and him lasting a couple of months before being bombed out back to the Thames Valley in Swindon Town. But watching Beecham then, there's like nothing he couldn't do with the ball. He used to glide past defenders. He's one of the most one-footed players I've ever seen, actually. But he just, he had such an elegance about him. Yeah, we all, he was, at Oxford at the time, they were sort of paralysed by the, the post-Robert Maxwell days and they were stymied by you know, financial hardship and it's ultimately why Beecham had to go to West Ham. But that was kind of within the context of that side where, you know, every couple of weeks, every couple of months, there'd be a new loan signing, there'd be a new player that nobody had ever heard of. Beecham, because of his attachment to the area, was a constant. And Beecham was someone who never really wanted to leave and who who was a sort of made the side competitive almost against yeah. anybody. Actually, I, I spoke to him a, a few years ago. He, he had, a, had a bit of a difficult time after he retired. Glad to say that his life has kind of rebounded and things are looking up for him. But he's just a normal guy. He was a, a supremely gifted player. I really believe even now that he, he probably had his career gone a different way. He probably could have played for England. I mean, he was left-footed and a left-winger, so... <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't as if England, England had a surplus of those mm. um but he yeah there was a normality to him but also just a, a wonderfully gifted player and entertaining um yeah 
Played against so, him, yeah. Did you? Yeah, did you really? Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. That? During that, during that era, yeah. No, I remember him as uh, being fantastic. Yeah, no, really, really, really talented. And by the way, the the, the player a little bit later that I really looked up to, I, I couldn't really shout about it because he, he he represented Spurs at the time. Was Chris, <laughs> was Chris Waddle? Chris Waddle ah, was yeah, the yeah. player that I really looked up to. And, and we had some good role models at Arsenal. David Rodecastle used to watch week in, week out. Used to, you know, just love watching him. Limpar the same. But Chris Waddle was always my favourite. But yeah, when he when he played at White Hart Lane, I had to keep that one on the low down. <laughs> I've, I've, I've always thought it's the, it's, it's the players that are expressive. Like as you get older, you start to appreciate the functionality of footballers and the roles that they do. When you when you're when you're a boy. Or when you're when you're first learning how to play the game, whether it's a professional or like me as an amateur or something, you know, I think it's the players that sort of are uninhibited that really attract you. Those are the ones that always stick in my mind, definitely. Yeah, well, I suppose what this is doing is is you know emphasising the power of nostalgia, in, especially in these current times. I threw this out yesterday to the listeners to give me some of their own examples. You know, we've got a low back and probably enough for a couple of programmes, but... They basically span the generations, which is you know quite good for us in many ways. So we can we can really look at it in in the round, as it were. I'll start with with Mark Osborne. He says, "Look, can I put forward Stan Bowles? I went to QPR with Dad for the first time in 1973, and from then on, I only wanted to see Stan. He was captivating, and the 75-76 season was the best football I've seen." He played as if he didn't care either way, and I fell in love, which is lovely and poetic, and I suppose it also points out the the attraction of the maverick footballer. And and Stan was, you know, a, a, a maverick footballer. It's the old story, wasn't it? You know, if he if he could pass a betting shop in the way that he passed the ball, he'd be okay. But he wasn't. <laughs> what do you think about that whole idea of the maverick player, Seb? I love it, Mike. I'm still seduced by it now. I think someone like Bowles is he's in a, a category of someone like Rod, Rodney Marsh or Frank Worthington, that kind of footballer. I thought for a long time why this is, why, you know, because often those are the players that, you know, while they entertain people, they don't quite achieve what they should have done or what their what their talent should have allowed them to. And I think it's because they live their lives in quite an ordinary way. They're fallible in the way that a lot of people are. So, you know, betting and drinking, you know, and socialising. These these are these are, are very human afflictions. And I think there'll always be something really attractive about someone who lives like an ordinary person but has a supernatural ability on a Saturday afternoon. I think it's that. I don't know exactly what it is, but it, it's that's a common theme with all mm. of those players that fit into that category. You could even go back to someone like sort of Len Shackleton, not in the kind of the, the social sense, but in the way that he wasn't bound by the constraints of the game. He wanted to entertain people. He wanted, mm. he thought of the people in the stands. And I think that's a really valuable commodity. Yeah. I, I think the other one, most common type of hero is the tough guy, isn't it? The the one that, the, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the cruncher of tackles, the one that dry, you know, the leader of men, the one that, that puts in that reducer every now and again and wipes somebody out. I think a lot of, a lot of players, it depends, I think sometimes on what you what you're like as a person, what position you play on in the pitch. But someone like Tony Adams, for example, you know, not a maverick footballer by any sense of example, but he'd be a hero to, to, to hundreds of thousands of Arsenal fans for the way that he played, which was sort of leading by example, I guess. 
Yeah, I'd throw Barry Kitchener there from Millwall. He was a, on a permanent diet of reducers, I think. <laughs> um, the other type of player is someone who gets the most out of himself. You know, we, people talk about Gary Neville in that in that context. Tony Mee puts forward Kevin Keegan as someone who overcame that too small tag to become one of the best of his era. And, he tells us, he came from Doncaster, which <laughs> gives you a clue as to which club at which he uh, coaches. Um, Kevin Keegan <laughs> did yeah. absolutely make the most of himself, didn't he, Aid? He did, yeah. He, he, he was a fantastic footballer, just so busy, so energetic, just enthusiastic, wasn't he? And I think when, when you go and watch football and you go and pay your, your money, your own money or your mum and dad's money to go and watch <laughs> go and watch it go and watch a team then you want to see real energy and enthusiasm i think and 100% effort and and keegan always did that i mean what what a career he had and and, and i love the fact that he was one of the first to to really be a pioneer and and go and play overseas in german football where where he scaled even even greater heights unbelievably and you know he was at one point was he European Footballer of the Year, Kevin Kevin Keegan? Yep. I think he might have been. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I think ability-wise, good ability, but not but not exceptional. But but he, he got there because of that hard work and, and enthusiasm, and that, that those qualities are incredibly endearing, aren't they, to to fans of sport in general? Yeah, let's look at an, another a club, Gina Huff, who's a Man United supporter. She said, look, it would have been Scolzi for his unswerving loyalty until I saw a documentary a few years ago on Cyril Regis. If we're talking about heroes, Cyril all day long. Do you get that one, Seb? Absolutely. I mean, I, I can understand the resonance of Cyril Regis. I mean, I was going to jump in on, on something that Adrian said, like with the, with the players that, because we're talking about Man United, the players that sort of extract the most from themselves... I throw someone like Gary Neville into that mix as well. Yeah, like I, I know what he. I, I know some of parts of his personality rub people the wrong way, but I find him a you know a very sincere pundit on the game, very very entertaining commentator. But you look at someone that wasn't necessarily born with extravagant gifts. I think Cyril Regis was a very gifted player. I look at Neville as more of a functional person, someone that absolutely almost almost through an iron will developed a, a career in the game and what a career that was as well and I, I think sort of if you read his autobiography or you you know sort of listen to the anecdotes about how Peter Schmeichel used to mock him for his bad crossing and how he used to spend his time trying to trying to refine his technique as a result of that I think kind of that's the essence of footballer that you don't really find today because I don't think there's necessarily the opportunity for a, a never or perhaps a better example is Frank Lampard there isn't the opportunity for someone like that to survive the cuts at academy level and then develop and learn and hone their craft. But it's really interesting, actually, how many people say, when they're asked about heroes, how many people offer someone that they can relate to in the kind of sense that of someone that perhaps struggled for a career and overcame sort of maybe physical or technical limitations. I think if you look at mm. Cyril, yeah. though, you know, he had a symbolic career and life. Mm. You know, the three degrees at West Brom in in an era in which racism was overt and consistent. So in that sense, mm. you know, we talk quite loosely about football producing role models, Aid, but he was a true role model, you know, 
heck of a player, but also as a as an individual, he made a big impact well, on people. What he had to take, what he had to put up with in terms of racism during the the, the peak of his career was you just wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. And 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 he did it. He, he handled it. Did it with a smile on his face and inspired people through through his brilliance on the pitch, as well as as, as rising above what was going on around him to, to to be the better person and 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 that's why he's seen as as such a hero by so many people i think when he passed away it was it, it hit home when you when you read read about his career and his life it just reminded you of what he'd he'd been through so no i absolutely i think he's a genuine hero cyril regis not just for what he did uh you know for particularly for, for west brom at the hawthorns but but, but for how he carried himself in the face of, of just such spiteful racism at the time, I just thought was was brilliant. Do you guys find it strange that players like Albert Johansson and Clyde Best aren't featured more in this kind of conversation? I read Clyde Best's autobiography about six months ago, and some of the things he describes in there made me wince. Are we, unfortunately, you know, racially aggravated anecdotes are a common part of football still, which is ridiculous, but that is the case. So we're all a little bit hardened to it. But some of the things he describes are just absolutely horrifying. Mm. And when you think that Johannesson was playing in not quite the era before, but the decade before, and you think that sort of the things that sort of they had to to tolerate to make a career for themselves, obviously in Johannesson's case, it had a very detrimental effect on the rest of his life. But it's, it's interesting that those people are more of a part of the conversation. Cyril Regis, absolutely, quite rightly so. Laurie Cunningham, you know, absolutely. Uh, John Barnes, these are pioneers, trailblazers in, in, in different kinds of ways. But the things that had to be tolerated and the strength of personality that some of these founding fathers, some of these formative players, I, I just, I can't even relate to it. It's just absolutely yeah. dreadful. Yeah, well said. You know, as I said, we had... An awful lot of response to this. I'll pick one more and then we'll come back to this on Thursday if we could, guys. Paul McAwenny, he puts forward two guy at Blackburn. He said, look, I've rarely seen anyone so unhurried when receiving the ball other than maybe the world's top 10. He was a hero in the way he quietly stepped up at Premier League level and did it. Sooner stated he was the most talked about player by opposition managers in his career. And I suppose, Aid, that's the the accolade, isn't it? If your <laughs> opponent talks about you, you're yeah, making an impact. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. No, I wish more of my more of my opponents talked about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they do, but, but they had a bit of a giggle, didn't they? Yeah, I was just who? I didn't know he was playing. Um, yeah, no, two guys was class. And I think it was the fact that he he, he Blackburn as well, wasn't it? You know, he didn't. It wasn't the the most fashionable of places or, or teams but yeah he was just a great footballer to watch and yeah if you're watching these kind of players week in week out it's very very easy to fall in love with them yeah in terms of that Blackburn team it tends to get overlooked you know the Premier League winning team what's your assessment of that team Seb interesting because I, I, I think over time the way it was built has, has kind of been overlooked obviously Jack Walker was behind it and Blackburn spent an awful lot of money assembling that side so you can look at it two different ways. You can see them as a kind of the romantic fairy tale that, that pit Manchester United to the, you know, to the post. Or you can see them as a kind of precursor for what football will become. So maybe, you know, I, I know it involves a little bit of license and the finances in the 90s were very, very different to what exists today. 
But you look at the sums spent on Alan Shearer, Tim Flowers, players like that, Jason Wilcox, Stuart Ripley. They, it's the prototype for, for Chelsea, Manchester City. It's the prototype for the, for the quick build, essentially, isn't it? I remember getting behind Blackburn because, let's be honest, in the 90s, Manchester United had run over most of our teams a couple of times. And even by that point, they, they sort of they'd provoked a little bit of resentment and jealousy. But it just makes me think of that final day. That final Jamie Redknapp free kick, and it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen, the sort of the reaction at Anfield to a Liverpool player scoring a terrific goal, but possibly handing the title at the time, they thought, to Manchester United. Mm. It's one of the, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, th- I think it's a kind of, it's a better story than the Manchester City QPR year, which, mm. you know, I mean, it's dramatic in a lot of ways, of course, but I think the sort of the, the nature of that was a little bit more compelling. On, on to go very quickly, another reason why I think Rovers fans worship him so much is that he came to them in the twilight of his career. He was, he was yeah. 30, 31, I think, and gave them, you know, I think seven or eight great seasons. Not as a modern athlete, not as someone that's charging around the pitch, you know, particularly, but just someone who was just class in possession. So, yeah, great player. I think I think Sir Alex Ferguson tried to sign him when he was about thirty three. He was that good. <laughs> yeah, that he um, <laughs> that doesn't happen. 32, does it? 30, it doesn't happen now. But, yeah. but Ferguson had a bit of previous for that. He tried to do it with De Canio as well, and two guys. So that's a that's a pretty special category of player. And Henrik Larsson perhaps is in that mm. uh, in in that True. little bracket. So it's a pretty special category of player to be in. Yeah, let's sort of change tack if we could, guys, just to talk a little bit. I know we've dwelt on this subject almost ad nauseum over the last few weeks about when and if the season's going to get going again. It looks now that the talk is of a June the 8th restart. Now, as a target, is that meaningless because no one really knows what's going to go on? Or do we think that actually we will get to the stage where there will be a hard and fast decision to resume the season behind closed doors and get some certainty to the process, however inappropriate or not, that might seem to the wider world. I think it still feels early, but to me, just with the seriousness of the situation around us, it still feels quite quite soon to be starting. But, but I do get the feeling there's a real determination for football to be one of the first things to, to come back, albeit not in its usual guise, being behind closed doors, etc., so a lot of things have got to improve between now and then in the wider picture. As long as hospitals aren't overrunning the way they are now and that the players and staff and all the people that are going to have to be part of this match day are going to be safe and that they're not ill at the time, then, then yeah, let's, let's look towards that. And it's good to have a target. Personally, I don't care if it's June the 8th, July the 8th, August the 8th, September the 8th. Really, I just think we'll be ready when we're ready. But yeah, I, I get the growing sense that that June is a very uh, that everyone involved in football is determined to get it back in June. Not least because of the money that is is being spent for, on nothing really in terms of wages right now. Yeah, uh, Brighton's Paul Barber, I think, come across as a very measured voice in this whole debate. You know, he's talked about trying to ease the soullessness of a behind-closed-doors game. He's talking about piping in music. Does that just become too artificial, do you think, Seb? Yeah, so you know that scene in, in Apocalypse Now when they're having barbecues on the beach and they're singing songs and they're playing the acoustic guitar and and Willard says something like, you know, the more they try to make it like home, the more everyone just missed it. 
I think it's that. I think the more, and I, I think we're already experiencing that because, you know, the, there's an awful lot of nostalgia out there and we do a lot of it and I love it. But the more we talk about it, the more I miss the sport. And I think the problem is if you, if you go down the road of, if you go down the road of, of, of piping in crowd noise and, you know, goal celebrations and chants, I think, I think you almost make it worse. I think you have to in that situation. And, and I, I have no real reference to this, but I, I think you have to almost embrace the oddity of the scenario where you say it's an empty stadium game. It is what it is. Let's not go down the route of, you know, hologram crowd members and, <laughs> you know, soundtracks and I don't know, like uh, whatever, whatever else is in that sort of. I don't hate the idea of it. I don't. Oh, Adrian. I don't oh, hate Adrian. the idea. <laughs> I don't. I, I, maybe I'm on my own. I don't know. Might kick just, him off the pod for that. I just <laughs> think. I just think it's like watching a training session. That's the problem. I love football. You know, I'm a, I'm obsessed by football. Always have been. I've watched hundreds of games. I've played in hundreds of games where there have been no crowd. But I find it hard. I don't enjoy it as much. And But we're going to have to accept it. But yeah, I, I didn't think it was the worst idea in the world. I think on night games, I don't know if there's a way of, of you know, uh, turning the lights off in the stands. So, you can, so basically the, just the lights are on the pitch. We can black out everything. Just to, to just the, just seeing so many empty seats, is it does make it feel soulless. And it's the thud of the ball. It's it's hearing the players talking to each other. I don't know. I don't know if that's what people really want. Adrian, did you did you ever play at high? You know when they were rebuilding. I think it was the mm. clock end they were rebuilding the mural, the um, mural, the North Bank. Yeah, with a so for 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 younger people who haven't seen it, just mm. Google it. That's a kind of a controversy of its own, of course, but for different reasons. But was that not weird to be playing in front of you know sort of a, a cartoon? <laughs> Like a cartoon yeah. crowd. Yeah, I played. I played many, many. Uh, I think youth games and reserve games at Highbury there when the mirror was there. Yeah, it was. It was right close, <laughs> right up behind the goal. Yeah, it yeah. Was, you could clear it. I mean, you'd have to really sky your shot to clear to clear it. But yeah, it was basically a picture of a Sabutio stand full of fans. <laughs> and and and, and rumour had it that, that they did sort of pipe out some kind of some kind of noise from that end. I don't know. Where, I don't know how they did that, but. I, I don't know if that's factually correct or not, but but no, it was it was better to do that than to play in front of a building site, in my in my opinion. Even though people laughed at it incessantly. Um, yeah, I, so. I, to be honest, and I, you know, I'll I'll open this can of worms very briefly and then shut it quickly. But I'm convinced that some clubs do actually pipe some crowd noise in, yeah. just to get things going. So I suppose it's not it's not authentic. Let's put it like that. No, um, players would speaking... players would know it's not players would know it's not authentic, Mike. But but they, I think having a background noise might might make it feel more normal. But look, I, it's, it feels like I'm in the minority here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose football is 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 a communal experience, isn't it? And I, and I suppose you know our next area of discussion, the great tournaments that we've experienced and enjoyed probably bears that out Italia 90 was a national obsession which then became a national trauma and it was quite weird I, I covered the whole lot right from the time that England were preparing in Sardinia at the Forte which was basically a posh butlins it was a strange tournament it wasn't a brilliant tournament if you look at the stats it was only an average of 2.2 goals per game which is a record low there were a record, I think at the time anyway, 16 red cards in that tournament. England's 
initial group was tedium personified. It was just awful. The Netherlands, England, Republic of Ireland, Egypt. In those six games, no team managed to score more than once. And England beat Egypt 1-0. That was the only game with a decisive result. So it was a strange time. Just, you know, I'll, I'll come back with some of my other memories, uh, which are specifically on Bobby Robson, who was taking an awful lot of stick at the time, the whole Gaza incident. What are your memories? So probably it's closer to you in terms of, was this the first World Cup you really got into? Yeah, it would have been. So basically, this was the summer when my mum spilt a cup of tea on an, one of those old school TVs uh, <laughs> and it broke. <laughs> and so we, without any uh without any internet or without any streaming devices that was not oh, no. that was not the best world cup summer for me after that point so i think i think we got as far as as far uh, the, the last memory i have of it is the cameroon game and then uh yeah then bless my mum oh, she knocked over a cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> that's unbelievable <laughs> but isn't this it, i mean um Obviously, if you look, it was quite interesting because the BBC showed the Germany semi-final a couple of days ago, and a lot of people that you know had never seen it before as live got to watch it. It's really interesting to see that style of football, and you can ex- you can see exactly why the back pass rule wasn't far off. It's amazing that it lasts as long as it did because obviously it wasn't the only reason for the negativity of that tournament, but it's one of them. And you, you see sort of centre halves kicking it back into a goalkeeper's hands. It's such a strange, as, as strange as it was when they outlawed it and goalkeepers were no longer use, allowed to use their hands in back passes, it's actually stranger to watch it now. Over Like 20 years later, given the sort of the, the aesthetic we've become so used to. And I suppose that's a really important legacy because that's that sort of birthed what the game is today. If you think about how Guardioli loses goalkeepers, how he mandates how the ball is worked out from the back, it all really comes from something which came to pass the Italian 90. Mm. Yeah, I, I suppose for me that tournament really took off over the course of, of two days. I went to see the Republic of Ireland and uh, Romania in, it was Genoa, the Sampdoria Stadium there. And you know, the, the Irish won 5-4 on pens. They, they didn't miss. David O'Leary stepped up to score the decisive penalty. And then the following day in Bologna, that was when the World Cup really took off for England, I think, when David Platt scored that fantastic goal, last minute of extra time against Belgium. Uh, again, we've talked about this in the past. You know, that was where we were gabbling, ad-libbing down the phone against all sorts of deadlines. You know, a huge adrenaline rush of a game. Um, that Platt goal has gone down in history, hasn't it, Aid? Yeah, it has, yeah. That's one of the moments I would 100% pick out from that tournament. It was one of those out-of-your-seat, jump-around-the-living-room, go-absolutely-crazy moments because we were staring at another penalty shootout. We weren't very good at those and came up with a, with a worldie. No, that, and that was the moment that I think fans around the country began to, to really get behind Bobby Robson's team. For me, the tournament... Even though it, there was a lot of really dull games, it was it was the first one where the the media and the TV really dressed it up, and it became a, a bigger event because of the coverage. Nessam Dormer, I'm talking about. It was that that when I think of Italian '90, I, I think Pavarotti, I think the theme tune, and then I think about some some of the the bigger moments that that 
Because there were some great moments. Roger Miller. I mean, he was what a story he was. Got the winner, didn't he, against Argentina on the opening day? Scalacci. I mean, Scalacci came from nowhere to be the the home nation's hero. He was sensational. I love the Italian kit. They were glamorous with Baggio and Donadoni. Glorious. But yeah, I suppose we look at it from from England's point of view. Crazy game against Cameroon in in the quarters. Just about scraped it. Thanks to Gary Lineker, and and then yeah, then then we know what happened against Germany. But you're right about the back pass rule. From from that moment onwards, it was it was pretty much outlawed, wasn't it? So yeah, for me it was for me it was a special tournament because it made football even more mainstream than it had ever been before. I think I think more families got into it because in the 80s and the 70s, football hooliganism had been hooliganism had been associated with football, and it was a, it was a bit ugly at times. It became more of a... We had superstars, didn't we? We had Gaza. We had Gary Lineker on our screen. We had Gaza crying. I think that moment, in a way, almost touched the hearts of the nation and football became bigger than it had been previous to that. And, and lo and behold, what, you know, a couple of years later, the Premier League was born and we never, we never looked back. You know what's interesting is that I was... Um, when we were researching for this, like I went back. I found, obviously, some footage from Italian Night itself, but... I found an old episode, a reaction episode of Satan Greavesy from after, from after the Argentina Cameroon game, and that's just brilliant TV because we haven't quite reached the point in the game's history where everything is super serious yet. Like yeah. Jimmy Greaves is still able; he's got like a, he's got this little voodoo doll of a referee that he pulls apart during the episode, and so it's kind of it's right in the sweet spot of the game mattering an awful lot more to, let's say, a different type of person. Mm. Um, in time because it's emerging from the 70s and 80s but you've also it's still fun you know it, 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 tv coverage is still allowed to be slightly offbeat not in a sort of banter way but in a you know it's football and we love it but we're allowed to have a little bit of a joke at, at, at its expense sometimes uh, if, if anyone's never seen that saying greaves is one of the fondest memories of my childhood just because of what they were on on itvs on a sunday afternoon yeah, but go and dig that out if you're, uh, if you're under 25. I've got a recording of, of myself being on St. and Greavesy from really? back in the day. Yeah, which is awesome. It's, and it links in nicely because it was at the trials to get into the FA National School at Lillishaw. This would have been 1989. I would have been 14. And St. and Greavesy did a feature on, on it. And they did it because guess who was running those trials of 14-year-olds looking for the best 16 in the country at the time? Bobby Robson. The, the the national team manager was there with his clipboard on the sideline, geeing everyone up, you know, basically <laughs> controlling it. And and yeah, it was just unbelievable to be a part of it. And then for me as a kid, so then a year later, um, watch watch him and the, and the, and the sort of nation hate him at first and then fall in love with him it was really special. Actually, it's that, just that's amazing, Abe, because I, I didn't I didn't know that actually, mm, mm. but. You, you've got it in one there with the, the way that the mood changed. And I think people tend to forget how poisonous the atmosphere was going into that tournament. You know, we had Bobby committed himself to go to PSV. Headlines, traitor, plonker, we're a laughing stock. Badges, Robson must go. It was almost rescued by the absurdity of Gaza in, in a way because... You know, we used to go to the to the holiday camp to see them, 
And Gazza will always be getting up to something. And there's there's a famous clip of him getting a, a full chocolate cake in the face from Chris <laughs> Waddle, which was pretty much standard behaviour. And, you know, as Bobby used to say, he said, look, you know, basically, when you play a game, we should have two balls, one for Gazza and give, the, give another one to the rest. <laughs> and I thought it was a really poignant relationship between Gazza and Bobby because it was paternal. But it was also, it was it was so touching that I suppose Gaza, you know, I remember Gaza saying, and I think he's probably talked about this subsequently, about almost how he felt safe on a football pitch and in a football environment because that was what he knew. And the whole world of, in inverted commas, celebrity to which he was sub uh, subjected was so unreal he didn't really um, know how to deal with it. As a footballer, and again, you know, I'm conscious that uh, you know quite a few people probably are listening to that. This, this, uh, really have never seen Gascoigne at his height. What was his impact on the game? Do you think, Seb, at that particular moment? Oh goodness, what a big question! I think his. Uh, uh, let, let me refine it. I think his impact on British football, because I don't think we've had many players who play like he did. We can argue about when it was that his career reached its apex. I'd argue the cup final and the tackle on Gary Charles, even if he had some very fine years at Rangers. Even now, if you, if you look back at what he could do with the football in relation to what the typical English player did with it, I think Gascoigne, in a really pretentious way, I think he restored a bit of ego. I, I think one of the games that should be sort of most fondly remembered from his career is the game with the Dutch at Italian 90, because rather than 96, because... He did all the things that Dutch footballers were associated with. To see an English player play like that for, for a new generation of people, for people who are my age, is incredibly powerful. But it, probably in a way that we don't realise, Mike, because to talk of Gascoigne now, unfortunately, like if there's no way of getting around it. There's an awful lot of other things that we have to involve in that conversation. It's just not about football anymore. It's a cautionary tale. It's about society. But as a footballer, enormously powerful figure. Yeah, I don't think we'd seen players play for England for a number of years prior to that, play with the same liberation as, as hey, Maybe Gazza. Glenn Hoddle. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Glenn Hoddle. Well, even then, I think he was a little bit restricted yeah. at times. I, I think he just was himself and he was the line breaker, wasn't he? The ultimate line breaker yeah. in central midfield. You're not supposed to be able to take players on and break the lines and spark attacks, but he, that's what he did for fun. And, and we were used to seeing... Foreigners do that. That was what that was what the greats of Dutch football, Spanish football, Italian, German. That's what they did. And then suddenly we had one. It, and I have to be honest. I mean, very few footballers have been produced since in the same mould. I think they they really only made one mould for Gaza, didn't they? Yeah, and and you know he will be remembered for you know, for the tears when he realised that if England got to the final, he, he wouldn't be playing. You know, it was such a dramatic evening that, but for most of it, I was convinced England were going to win. Even when Paul Parker deflected that shot in the early going, Gary Lineker's equaliser wasn't a surprise. Then we come down to penalties. And I suppose the whole neurosis of penalties engulfed us. I can remember Bobby being almost... Well, he was so crestfallen afterwards. It was interesting. I'd, I'd seen him at, at Mexico and he was incandescent with Maradona's cheating. Here he was almost 
battered down by by fate, and he was really he was he, he cut a really quite sad figure. Now I, I understand that. So my impression of it on the day was obviously it's a professional thing. So you know, again we were under deadline pressure. I think uh, from memory, I think the game ended just after half past eleven at night, uh, and I know it was still about twenty five degrees at the time. But there was a personal thing as well because there was something about Bobby that made you love him. You know, there was that boyishness about him. He could hand out some stick, but he was a very fair man and a very good man. Just very briefly, give me both your impressions of that penalty shootout. Where were you <laughs> and how did you react? <laughs> well, Seb, Seb never saw it, did he? <laughs> TV hadn't been fixed by then, no. <laughs> Radio, I suppose. Yeah, I, I would have been in the Radio living, in the background. Yeah, yeah, I would have been in the living room with my mum and dad and my brother Alex and we'd have been all on the edge of our seats. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'd have done. I'd probably lobbed a cushion or something. I'd have been quite, quite angry about it at the time. It's, But yeah, it, it was just, it was just devastating because we, that momentum had built up that we all believed at that time that, that, that Gaza and Lineker and, 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 and Sir Bobby would, would, would drive us all away. Yeah, it was the dreaded, dreaded penalties, wasn't it? Um, that was the first time I can remember being hurt by football. Yeah, it did hurt. Yeah, it was it's, it's a it's a feeling like um, you know, when you're a teenager and you know the first time you get dumped, it's like <laughs> that feeling. It's a kind of it's it's an actual wound. Got you used to it. Got used to it. See, people listening don't know that we've got Skype on. And I can see you both smirking before you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's yeah. This is a, this is a real real gear shift. Let's go into management, shall we? I want to just talk about three managers today in this series that we're doing: David Moyes, Nuno, and Nigel Pearson. Start with David Moyes. I don't think he he gets the respect perhaps that he deserves. You know, when you think of what he did at Everton, building an entire club, Manchester United tainted him. Let's be honest. But I think what he did at West Ham should have got greater praise, and he seems to be doing the same thing again. Hey, what do you think about David Moyes? I get, I get, I get exactly where you're coming from. Personally, I'm not a fan, and and it's not because I don't think he's a he's a good manager. He's clearly has been a very very good manager at Everton. He he was sensational. No no other word to describe it. But I think that what happened at United affected his confidence. And I just don't see that light in his eyes anymore, that spark. And I don't think he gets the players to play with that fire and that belief and that energy that he had at Everton. I don't think he's been able to replicate that since. And that's just the way I look at it. I know that's that's quite critical of a very good footballing man, but I just think something he lost something through that Manchester United experience. And for me, it's just a bit too defensive, a bit too dour now. And yeah, his teams before were vibrant and hungry and unbelievably aggressive. And I don't know if they are anymore. Would you concur, Seb? Yeah, just about. I also think he doesn't help himself. I mean, when he, when he was um, unveiled by West Ham, this press yeah, conference, yeah. he said something along the lines of, yeah, now winning is what I do. After saying... Yeah, I've seen your win percentage in the Premier League. Like, 
you know, you, you, he, he kind of, his media handling isn't the best and maybe that shouldn't be a decisive factor, but it does change the way you look at him. I mean, what, what I will say is, is his first, we don't know what his second spell at West Ham is going to be yet, let's be fair. His first, I think if we look back knowing what we do now, he did pretty well with a an ownership who don't always make life easy. You've got their own ideas who probably believe a little bit too strongly in their own football acumen. So I think he's warranted some respect for that. I don't know, Mike, Everton's such a long time ago now. I mean, it doesn't seem like time passes quickly in football, but it's almost a different era of the game. And it's kind of harking back to that is like sort of, is like referencing Sam Allardyce's Bolton. Mm, It seems it's relevant without being sort of particularly pertinent at the moment, if that makes sense. Okay, I suspect you, you're going to be a little bit more generous towards the next one, uh, Seb. Uh, Nuno, uh, you like him, don't you? Love him, love him, love him. I think he's tactically one of the finest managers in the division. Anytime I, you know, it's like a modern you, you have those, you know, the press box is high up and you, you're almost on top of the pitch. And it's, you know, it's, it's definitely the, the, the best, one of the best vantage points in the league. You see how clever and well connected his team is. And also, because of Wolves' wealth and their relationship with George Mendes, it was always assumed, right, well, they're just going to stack this team full of individuals and they're going to be a kind of a by-the-numbers sort of success. Now, I would argue that he's done amazing things with players that, not that people hadn't heard of, but that nobody would have promoted into that situation. Like Raul Jimenez, people talk of now as someone that could play for just about any team within the top six. Wolves are, you know, in the top six themselves, but the notional top six. And you think, okay, but... You know, two years ago, Raul Jimenez was just someone that wasn't thought of as capable enough to cut it in Europe. He'd had barren times at Atletico Madrid. He was never prolific in Benfica. He hadn't actually scored. He hadn't actually reached double figures, I don't think, since he left Mexican football. And you see what he is now. You see also what Nuno's been able to do with a Rubik's Cube like Adama Traore, who no other manager's really been able to work out to, to this extent. Diogo Jota. The sort of I know Ruben Neves is a hugely talented player, but his career has come on dramatically. Jao Martino, he's got a final tune out of Willy Bowley, Matt Doherty, Connor, Connor Cody. I mean, all these players, it's just an endless list, Mike. You know, Pedro Neto as well as in there. I think he's going to be a fantastic player. Aid, do you think that, you know, we, we almost saw him at, at the start as Jorge Mendes's man, but he's actually more than that. Oh, he? yeah, much more. Yeah, he's a very, very accomplished coach. The work on the training ground is is outstanding. And as Seb has, has brilliantly outlined, he improves players. Great eye, clearly, for, for the for the types of players that will fit into his strategies and identity. I mean, he has the clearest identity, I think, along probably with Sheffield United, of anyone in, in the Premier League, Liverpool as well, you can put into that category. Just you know, you know how Wolves will play. Now, my only criticism would be, and it's uh, it's only a criticism because we don't know, is can he adapt? Can he change his style of football? Can he change his formations? I know he tweaks with the with three at the back at times. I'd like to see him just maybe mix it up a little bit more. I'd like to see him just shock opponents with with a, a flat back four every now and again, maybe just to to, to get over the line in a match, and that, and that I think would just tick another box for me that that he really is one of the elite coaches that's the only thing missing their football is a little bit by numbers I think but they're so good at it they're so well drilled that that it's effective for them so yeah one or two little things in the future that that, that boxes to tick but he's superb no doubt yeah the final one for today anyway Nigel Pearson in the process of 
almost reinventing himself at Watford. Again, we don't know how that's all going to pan out. It was a, an appointment which surprised quite a lot of people. Is he the new, uh, is this generation Sam Allardyce? Well, we'll wait to find that one out. For someone who, who, who left Leicester in unfortunate circumstances, Seb, he's actually done well to actually rally himself around, doesn't he? It definitely has. I mean, Nigel Pearson is a really, really excellent coach. I mean, that's been lost in translation, obviously, because of what happened next at Leicester, the circumstances surrounding his departure. What I will say, he's the only manager that actually unsettles me in press conferences. <laughs> I was The last one I did with him was, um, he, he, it was after Watford had lost at home to Everton, had lost a 2-0 lead and lost 3-2 in, in stoppage time. Someone a couple of rows ahead of me said, uh, you know, Nigel, um, you know, that was a little bit naive. And um, and he just, he just, he, he turns to the person and was like, well, naive how? And everyone else is sitting there thinking, well, in the sense that you've lost a two goal lead and, and been done on the counter-attack in stoppage time against a team who, who are playing with 10 men. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's slightly, I think it hurts him. It makes him entertaining, but it makes him at times a little bit of a spitting image puppet because he's, he's a little bit confrontational and he's a little bit offbeat. And, you know, whilst a lot of managers will just, you know, volley their way through press conferences and then leave as quickly as possible it's like he's he's the protagonist and sometimes i think that because of the way we report on football and because of how enraptured we are by you know character-based storylines i think that disguises what a capable football mind there is and and what an effect he's had on watford i can't even remember what state they're in as when as when the game paused but the the improvement on what they were was dramatic and he deserves an awful lot of credit for that because that was a that was a football club full of players who didn't really want to be there and you know who'd lost all you know useful confidence by you know by the time that Kike Sanchez Flores left. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right about that. He challenges people. He's definitely confrontational. Really yeah, well, obviously, you're worried that he's going to compare to some kind of animal. Well, you I think guess he's going to come it? jumping across the desk, Adrian, <laughs> yeah. like, and, and sort of rip your head off. But, it's the, but terrifying. But that personality in a football environment can work especially in a short-term sense where you're challenging players, you're, you're confronting them about their opinions, their, their perception of, of, of how they're performing potentially. And, and I can imagine that he, he has quite a good effect on, on the footballers in terms of perking them up. And we, I think we saw that at Watford. Maybe they'd been a little bit too chilled out under the previous couple of managers certainly under Kike Sanchez Flores but yeah no I, I think he's an excellent organizer no nonsense clear instructions but there are obvious limitations in terms of his in terms of style of football what I'll say with Watford he he just he went back to his his sort of plan a which is be solid play on the counter-attack let's not be afraid to be direct but cast your mind back to Leicester with the great escape season prior to Ranieri, he changed his system that season. He went away from what he'd always done. He went for three at the back. He went for something a little bit different, and it worked. And it, and it, he he got them, he got them over the line, and and the rest is history at Leicester. So I think tactically he's underrated, but yeah, he's <laughs> he's one from the old school, shall we say? Yeah. Certainly is. Now <laughs> you know we're we're running out of time as per usual. Very quickly, boys, scores on the doors. I would give David Moyes seven, Nuno eight, and Nigel Pearson six. You guys? 
oh I think you're generous with Moyes there Mike I'm gonna go I'm gonna I'm gonna drop him down to a five just because the last couple of years Nuno's a nine for me and Pearson's an eight I say yeah six six for Moyes uh, so very solid eight for Nuno with potential scope to be a nine <laughs> in the future um Pearson <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go solid a solid seven for Nigel but I prefer him to Moyes if I was you know I was a, a, a Watford or a West Ham I'd rather be working with with, with Pearson than Moyes I have to be honest okay but just a final then, thought for the day. Again, as brief as you can, boys, what do you want to get off your chest? Hey, start with you. Andy Pilly, the Fleetwood chairman. I spoke to him on, on the radio the other day. I love what he's doing with the videos. He's been very transparent. He's got ideas on how to survive, how EFL clubs can survive. But look, 10 to 12 clubs, is, is, is he's saying, that could go to the wall here. And, and I just think that is, let's just pause and have a think about that. 10 to 12 EFL clubs, some big clubs, are in serious danger of going out of business. No crowds potentially until Christmas time. Income streams just gone, yet they've got to find ways to pay the players. They might not pay them the full wages, but they've still got to pay, they've still got to employ these these guys. You know, furloughing is obviously one option, but there are still other costs, other bills to pay. So, So that's just my thought. What can we do? Is there any way that the people that do have a lot of money, organisations that do that are flush with cash at the top of the game, or even the government, is there any way we can protect these clubs from going out of business? Because it, it just, it would be, it really would be, there are tragedies everywhere you look at the moment, but it would be such a tragedy to, to lose 10 or 12 clubs by the time we come out of this. Yeah, well said. Seb? I read a, an interview with a um, guy you know very well, Mike, Marvin Sordell, over the weekend in the Daily Mirror. He was talking about the lack of support players have from the PFA when they find themselves with mental health difficulties, addictions, and other troubles within their lives. And he also speaks about how he approached them with potential solutions. I like Marvin. I, I think he's a really important voice for the future of professional football. I think he's someone that should be listened to more. In this instance, I think what he says should be tallied with perhaps how the PFA has held itself, what they've presented and uh, their sort of portrayal of themselves as kind of being of the collective interest. I'm not sure I really buy that. What Marvin says also tallies with some off-the-record conversations I've had with people in the past. He's someone to be paying a lot of attention to yeah. at the moment. <clears throat> yeah, that ties in actually with my point, really. There have been a couple of stories recently looking at the mental health of young players released by clubs. Now, it's four years since I began researching the subject for my book on youth football, No Hunger in Paradise. If we're plugging the BT Sport documentary of the same name, still available. What strikes me is that clubs still don't seem to care about their duty of care. You've got terrific organisations working outside the system I'm thinking of an organisation like PlayersNet, which basically provides confidential advice and support. An organisation like that doesn't get any official financial backing, which I think is a disgrace, frankly. It's wrong. And I think now more than ever, football needs to change its attitude. You can't sell a dream and then run away when that dream dies. So thanks to you for joining us and please stay safe out there.
The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big.